You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. And you are listening to Diaspora Blues, a 3CR radio program produced on Wurundjeri Country. I am Ayan Shirwa. Today we have a huge, huge show for you. It's so huge that I don't think we have enough time to play music. So let's just get into it. Kicking us off is Anya Saravanen from Justice Map. Anya is a Tamil woman and community lawyer working in the areas of summary crime and family violence. I visited Anya over the weekend to learn more about Justice Map and what they're doing to challenge carceral narratives. And later in the show, we'll hear a beautiful conversation between Kushi and her father, Sunny. It's a gorgeous, intimate look into migration, culture, and believe it or not, culinary skills. You're going to love it. But first up, my interview with Anya. Hi, Anya. Welcome to Diaspora Blues. Thank you, Ayan. I'm so pleased to be here. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, my name is Anya. I have been a community lawyer for about six years now. Um, I also do a bit of work with 3CR, and I'm currently working on a podcast called Queer Brood, which is about all the ways queer people make families. That sounds amazing. <laughs> and you've done a few interviews so far. Yes, I have. Yeah, it's all very exciting. I don't want to give too much away, but... Um, I guess the podcast is about the ways queer people make families which don't fit into a particular mould that we know or just to explore all the different ways chosen families come about. Mm. I mean, the reason I asked you that question is because I feel like it's very relevant to the conversation today, which is about uh, the initiative Justice Map. And mm. Justice Map is really big on challenging narratives. Mm. And I feel like that's what you're doing. Totally. Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so my next question is a two-parter. Mm. One, why did you get in, into law? Mm. And is it what you expected? Yeah. I think it's a really interesting question at this point in my life because I have been a lawyer for the last six years, but actually at this point in time, I'm going to be doing something else. And... So it's a nice moment for me to have a bit of time to reflect on how being in the law has been um, and what are the highs and lows, I guess. So that's a really good question. Um, I got into law initially, I suppose, as a way to contribute back to my community. I'm an Indian woman. I'm an Indian Tamil woman. And in my community, there's quite a high... Um, incidents of family violence which we don't really talk about and a lot of women um, face that silently and nobody really knows how the legal system can help them out. So that's sort of my initial aim to get into law school, be a lawyer and help my community and other communities in whatever ways I can. And then sort of around the third year or fourth year of law school I was really disillusioned 
because there was lots of talk on clerkships and corporate jobs. And I just knew firstly that I wouldn't fit. And secondly, I wouldn't be very good at it because if I'm not interested in something, then I do a really bad job at it. (laughs) It's just who I am. And so I was like, oh, maybe being a lawyer is not for me. I don't know what else to do. Um, And then in my final year, I did a placement at a community legal center. And that's when I sort of knew this is what I want to do. That, you know, working with community directly, working on all these sort of maybe little issues, um, but it impacts people in such a wide variety of ways and people with multiple disadvantages and intersecting disadvantages. And so that's when I decided if I ever become a lawyer, I was going to be a community lawyer, um, working in a community legal centre. And I've been fortunate enough to get a variety of jobs in that sector. And I would say mostly it's been a great experience. It's been what I expected. It's been working with people who really have so many issues and problems in their life, which is it's a bit of a structural thing, I would say. So, you know, clients who face poverty and racism and all sorts of different vulnerabilities. I mean, I kind of hate the term vulnerabilities, but at this point my mind is blank, so I'm just going to use it. Um, Why do you hate that term vulnerabilities? I don't know. It makes it sound like it's their fault for being vulnerable or like not being resilient enough or something, where it's actually really the oppressive structures around them that put them in that position. And a lot of these folks are sort of born into it, are pushed into it, and then they can't get out. And then somehow it's made out to sound as if they did it to themselves, if that sort of makes sense. Working in the community legal sector has been what I expected. I think what I didn't really expect is, I think, the the sort of treatment that I would encounter in the system. So I think the law itself is a very boys club sort of a situation. Mm. So being a woman in law is difficult as it is. And a lot of women have been doing excellent work in that space. But I think being a woman of color is an extra layer added to it that maybe we're not very good at talking about still. Um, But it's things like, you know, going to court, dressed in your blazer and your heels and still being called a client or being mistaken for a client immediately, maybe because you look you know, maybe because your skin color is the same as other people in court or whatever. And that's not to say that I'm ashamed of being mistaken for a client. That's not it at all. But it's just, you know, how many people would go into court and be assumed as a client, you know? Mm. And I think initially I was very good at sort of brushing it off, but over time it takes a bit of toll on you. And the other thing that I also didn't expect was individually the stories of most clients are quite hard and you sort of uh, expect to be emotionally affected and you you know put support systems around and all of that is good but I think cumulatively you start to realize how much the system is so set up against your clients mm. that you often feel like you're not doing enough or you're sort of I don't know banging your head against the wall mm. trying to change something that's so set in stone that you can't you're like chipping away and yeah it's kind of hard to see the result because you're still going yeah And often you don't really even have time to focus on larger advocacy efforts or something because the individual stories are so, you know, it takes up so much of your time and you want to do a good job for a client. But at the end of the day, you know that there are certain things that you can't ever change. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. 
maybe you can hold that thought because I feel like the next question yeah, sure. ties to it. Yeah. So my ideas about the criminal justice system is based on what the media, the mass media has put out. And I feel like I always get it wrong when I speak to you know friends who are lawyers and they're like, yeah, that's not really the case. Mm. What are some misconceptions that we have about the criminal justice system? Mm. And then I'll get you to follow that up with what are the facts? Yeah, I think most people think that the criminal justice system, the term itself, criminal justice, is a bit of a funny one because there's no justice in the system. There's no justice in imprisoning people. I think in law school, when you learn about the criminal justice system, prisons are, are there. They're just one part of the system. There's no questioning of whether they should be there, what are their foundations, uh, what sort of people are put in prison? Why are they there? Is it actually working? You never ask these sorts of questions. You just assume um, that bad people go to prison and that's how it is and um, that can never be changed. So I think it, for me personally, it took a lot of work to reframe that. Um, I must say I, I am an Indian woman. I'm you know, a minority, but not the kind of minority that will probably be pulled over while driving. And I don't have personal experience with prison. I don't have family members who've been to prison. So all of it is quite theoretical to me. Mm. Um, so I think for me personally, it took a lot of reframing to understand why the, the issue of incarceration is more layered than what people make it out to be. Mm. I think the general discourse in public is bad people go to prison. And if you don't want to go to prison, be a good person. And it's just so simplistic, right? Like, what, what does that even mean? And I think people assume that everyone's on the same level of wealth and, you know, sort of generational advantage, you know, good mental health, everyone has stable housing, everyone has enough food to eat, no one's affected by family violence. If all of that is true, then maybe you could say, you know, then if you go out and commit a crime, uh, then that's on you, maybe. Even then it's a bit problematic. But the reality is that that's not true. People who go to prison often have multiple intersecting disadvantages like poverty. Um, I think at the justice map, we found out that the number is 99% of women in prison have been um, survivors of family violence. Mm. And when you have all of that happening in your life, then at some point, if you make a mistake, then the right thing to do is to figure out how to help you mm. not make that mistake again and fix these other issues around you, give you more you know, money, give you more food to eat, try and find you a safe refuge from your, from your partner who's beating you up, you know. Um, and I think that's a lot harder for people to understand or accept because there's this, I guess, it's a kind of safety mechanism for people to think, I'm good, I'm mm. never going to be the kind of person who commits a crime. Mm. And then you do. Right. And a lot of people who commit a crime for the first time often come to me saying, actually, I'm not like that. These are my circumstances. This was a mistake. And it's just, well, that's, that's how it is for most people. Yeah. But you finally understand what it feels like to be on that side of, of the table. Exactly. And mm. I feel like there are certain communities who, are, who have more of an intimate experience, mm. whether it's not, even if it's not them, mm. they have family members, they have friends. Like for me, I've never had any contact with the criminal justice system but I have family and friends and, you know, people in the community. And I know that what we've been taught to believe about the criminal justice system is it what it is. Mm. And 
it's scary because you like to think everyone has the same equal access to to the law and sometimes who you are where you're from family trauma all that plays a fact absolutely plays a, um role in your circumstances um but yeah no thank you so much for contextualizing the issue um so the next question is because there's a link between and i feel like you've kind of alluded to it but there's a link between poverty and the criminal justice system um I'd love for you to talk about that and also the welfare system. How does it criminalize the poor? Mm, I think, I don't know the statistics off by heart, but there is some research done, or maybe heaps of research, my apologies if there has been, about how people facing homelessness are imprisoned at a really alarmingly high rate. And I suppose, I mean, you know, just very... Very simplistically, if you don't have anywhere to stay and if you're on the streets and you're trying to survive, then of course you're going to be committing crimes, you know, like stealing food to survive. How else would anyone survive? If the welfare system is more resourced and gave people homes to stay in and gave people more money to buy and eat food, then why would people steal food? It's not an offence that is sexy or something. You know, it's it's quite demeaning for a lot of people yeah. to have to accept that they did it and now they have to explain to the magistrate the entire backstory of why they're here now. And then what are the next steps? Say, you know, you find them or you put them on a good behaviour bond or, you know, maybe in extreme cases they might go to jail if it's coupled with other issues. And then what? They go to jail, they come out, and they still don't have a home to go to. They still don't have food to eat. And then the cycle continues. So unless we break the cycle of poverty and give people a safe place to stay and more money to live their lives, then of course they're going to go back to that same lifestyle. But nobody does it for fun. It's purely survival. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Anya. We will be back with more after this short community announcement. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. And you are listening to Diaspora Blues, a 3CR radio program. In this next half of my interview with Anya, Anya gives us an insight into the brilliant work being done at Justice Map. So you are with Justice Map. Firstly, what is Justice Map? And can you tell me a bit about your role and the kind of work that you're trying to put out into the world? I got involved with the Justice Map because a very good friend of mine, Rachel, is in it. She's um, a senior 
strategic advisor, I think is the role. I could be wrong. Sorry, Rachel. Um, and she sort of explained that the project was set up a couple of years ago to map the, the prison system um, because we are facing a crisis of mass incarceration, over-policing and over-criminalisation. And so the justice map is set up to figure out how the prison system is funded and how it works um, all over the country so that we can figure out how to end the crisis. Um, and so I joined the justice map, I think I want to say early last year. And at that time, the inquiry into the Victorian criminal justice system was announced. Um, I think it was chaired by Fiona Patton. And so I joined to help write a submission to the hearing. And that's how I got involved. And since then, I've been on the team trying to help with other pieces of, of editing and writing. And ultimately, the goal is to produce a report that explains how these prisons are funded. Because I think what people often forget is that the prison system is a very lucrative system. Lots of money goes into it. Lots of people make money out of it and for very little outcome. Even if we think of prison as a rehabilitative program or whatever, it actually doesn't work. There's so much research that says that the amount of money you spend on um, someone incarcerated could be better spent on trying to find them stable housing and it will be cheaper at the end of the day, even if you want to look at it from a purely money point of view. So part of what we're doing is to figure out where the money comes from. Right. It's interesting because if that is the case, if it's cheaper to put or to direct the funds towards like community and towards supporting them with their, you know, social mental needs, why do they continue to do it? Is it, is it really down to money? I think it's a popular narrative. I mean, it makes a government sound impressive or strong if they're like, we're putting the bad people away because we're keeping you safe. And people buy into it. Nobody wants to believe that they're bad. They want to believe that they're better than other people or something. Mm. I mean, I mean, you know, that's what I think. It's a very simplistic way of looking at it, I think. But even if you look at the Victorian government's framing of, you know, safety and policing, it's always we're here to save you. We're here to serve you. We're putting these people away. And that's a, an easy narrative for people to get behind. A narrative of like, oh, yeah, people are going to jail because of all these disadvantages. Let's help them fix it. It's not is not catchy. Yeah. It's not sexy. It makes it sound like the public have to pay extra money for that to happen. Where actually, that's not the truth. Right. It sounds like to me sensationalism. Mm. Sells. That's right. Okay. So what's next for Justice Map? What do you have in the pipeline? Yeah. So now that we've finished the submission into the hearing, we're just going back to doing the actual report that's been in the works for for years now on how. Um, you know, to figure out how prisons are funded and, and what's happening in prisons. Um, I joined the project quite late, but, you know, they've been doing it for years now. They've got all these great yarning circles all over the country, talking to women in prison um, to figure out what it is like inside. So a lot of it will come out in the report. Hopefully we'll be out end of this year, I think. But, you know, timelines keep shifting because of the pandemic. So <laughs> who knows? I think we cannot talk about incarceration and the problem of prisons without talking about the R word, which is racism. I think it's really important to recognize that the majority of people in prisons at the moment are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And there are lots of reasons that are out there for this that people would say, you know, there's poverty, there's generational trauma, etc. But they often never talk about the racism. It's just outright racism that these 
people get profiled, Aboriginal kids in prison are there because of a certain profiling situation. They're often over-policed communities and any discussion about abolition has to start from talking about the roots of where prisons come from in this country and that's racism. So I just want to give a quick shout out to you know people that listeners can follow if they want to hear more about this. Um, Dr. Chelsea Watergo on Twitter, she's a force to be reckoned with, and people who organise the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, Mariki Onis, Tanya Onis Williams, Nayuka Gori. Uh, these are the people that come to the top of my mind, but I'm sure I've missed many, but these are the people that listeners should be following and reading about and listening to. And they have the answers, we just have to listen. And that was Anya Saravanan from Justice Map. You can learn more about Justice Map by visiting justicemap.org.au. That's justicemap.org.au. Hi, we're from Braver College, and you're listening to Free CR Community Radio on 8:55 a.m. And now let's go to Kush's conversation with her lovely father, Sunny. All right. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Diaspora Blues. We're going to be joined today by another special guest. And I know I love interviewing my family members. This one's very, very important to me. It's actually my dad. Say hello. Oh, hi. <laughs> All right. So, Dad, we're going to just go through a few questions. Um, I don't know if you listened to the one that we did with Mum, but these are more to do with you. Now, you came to Australia. What year was it? I uh, kind of vaguely remembered. It's uh, 97. 97, okay. I, one of the questions I've always wanted to ask you was, what's the what was the biggest cultural shock coming here from India? Cultural shock. Yeah, first of all, the people. Mm-hmm. People. I mean, I, I lived in a city where the whole town's population was 23 million in, mm. in, in a single town. Mm. And when I got here, uh, the people were few and far between, so it was a uh, absolutely great shock, you know. Yeah, 100%. Did you find that when you came here, people were, like, did you find, like, a welcome? Did you find, oh, this is going to be my new home? What was the energy associated? Oh, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I can't I can't deny that. I mm-hmm. landed up in Sydney, and uh, it was amazing uh, in terms of the welcoming. Mm-hmm. People were nice. Sometimes I couldn't read properly some words and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I still remember I was lost in the in the place called Rock in in Sydney City, mm-hmm. and this gentleman literally came out of his way and and then showed me what used to be the Centrelink at the time called CES, mm-hmm. and then uh, yeah, it was just incredible oh, the whole experience. Thank you so much for that, Dad. I have another question. You talked about like reading and learning English. Now I know Sachi's told me you first learned your. English and when you in year 10, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Now, for those who don't know, my dad can speak three languages, English, Hindi, and Marathi. Marathi being your first language, right? Mm-hmm. Which is absolutely incredible because I can come here and there are people who can only speak the one language, which is English, right? So tell me, go through the process. How did you learn course, the difference yeah. between textbook English, right? So in year 10, and then um, and the textbook English, and then learning English coming into a new country. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, it's, a, it's a mandatory requirement, uh, I still remember, to to pass this English test called IELTS or IELTS mm-hmm. and not passing just 
on a bare minimum, but it was a, I think, fairly high score for my profession. And uh, I still remember written English wasn't an issue. Uh, the, the, the speaking actually, yes, everyone's got the accent, I get that. But uh, sometimes the pronunciation and also the, the listening and listening was a real challenge. Mm -hmm. And uh, you asked me about how I prepared, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I used to tune into ABC in India. Mm -hmm. I, I'm originally from India. Uh, then BBC a lot as well. And every, you know, um, I never used to miss an opportunity to talk to uh, people who are from overseas, especially from the Commonwealth, especially from Australia, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. England, and, uh, you know, and, and US, of course. And you used to go and meet those people in person and talk to them, you know, from various walks of life. And, and, and most importantly, reading newspaper, uh, jotting it down each and every word to um, up my vocab mm -hmm. and uh, yeah and sometimes I was uh, I was struggling even to understand how to pronounce a particular word so it's to consult a lot of people around mm -hmm. who who have been there and done that that's absolutely incredible dad and no, I really appreciate it I know we're doing this little interview in the car so for those who are listening yes you're getting that bit of ambience you're hearing a bit of the road, you're hearing a bit of the sirens in the background, you might even hear the car that's speaking to us when there's a rail railway sign. So for those who are listening, again, we're doing this little interview in the car because I normally don't even get to see Dad. He's so too, too busy. So I took this opportunity to, to talk to Dad. Dad, I have a few more questions before we finish up. Can you tell me, okay, now India, it's so, so vast when it comes to cuisine, right? Every state. When you came here, you talked about, you know, having to... I mean, were you were you much of a cook? Did you eat a lot of Indian takeout? Was it a particular go-to food you you went for when coming here? Uh, yeah, that's a it's a tremendous question, Kush. Um, uh, yes, so I I kind of um, learned cooking after coming here. I never used to cook because, as you know, we had a maid servant at home. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my sisters and mum used to look after me a lot <laughs> in terms of the you know food and etc. But when I came here, I realized, and I re realized very quickly that I have to do everything of my own. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my friend who was, I think uh, he was from Afghanistan. Uh, he, and we used to share accommodation. It's a multicultural scenario where we had, you know, Persians, we have Indians, we had uh, uh, people from Afghanistan, various people. And so I've learned from them, you know, who were before me as a student. And, and, um, and I picked up pretty quick uh, those uh, uh, cul culinary skills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm pretty, pretty good. I can feed probably, I don't know, 100 people easy. Yeah, all right, Dad. That's a bit of ego, but we love to see. We love to see. Dad's actually been cooking heaps lately. I would say, what was your, what is your favorite Indian cuisine? Mine would probably have to be a good, good like dal makhani and rice. I love. What about for yourself? Are you more, uh, I, feel, I, I feel like you like chicken. Yeah, so I was first exposed to the chicken vindaloo and butter chicken mm -hmm. because I never heard those terms, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Especially the vindaloo, I never heard that in India. <laughs> but uh, well, doesn't matter. Food is food, so I really loved it. Mm -hmm. And we used to have a in Sydney, there used to be a, a McDonald's equivalent <laughs> of uh, you know Indian food. 
Yeah. So we used to go there at that takeaway uh, uh, corner, mm-hmm. uh, get our food, and then yeah. So that joint would be your favorite. Yeah, yeah. It was an extremely uh, popular joint. Is yeah. that still there? Uh, no, I think that has been uh, disbanded now. Oh. Taken over by someone else. That's alright. At least the memory and the nostalgia of going there is still there. Absolutely. Dad, I really, really appreciate you joining me today in the car. I really do appreciate it. Even spending a bit of time with me. I know you're a very, very busy man. Do you have any piece of advice for those who are wanting to come overseas to study, or any advice for anyone who's wanting to come into Australia from your experience? Yeah. Look, uh, I always say. Uh, you have to, um, and this is kind of mantra I learned from my my superiors, my peers, and subordinates mm-hmm. all through these years. Uh, you have to plan early for whatever you do. Plan mm-hmm. early. Then you have to act decisively and and be flexible in your in your approach. Mm-hmm. That's the advice um, I would I would I would share. And of course, um, two ears and one mouth. What is that telling you? That two is to one ratio. Listen more. Listen more. Mm. Thank you so much, Dad. For our listeners, I know they'll deeply appreciate your wise words. Thank you again. And thank you for joining me in this little car interview, guys. I bet you thought I was joking when I said today would be content heavy. Thanks again to Anya Saravana from Justice Map. Visit justicemap.org.au. Wow, that's a mouthful. To stay informed about the legal issues affecting Australians. Of course, I can't forget Cushy and Sunny. I hope you enjoyed their conversation and learned something new. You can follow Cushy on Instagram at cushy.jad. So that's spelled K-H-U-S-H-I dot J-A-D. Listen back to this episode at 3cr.org.au forward slash Diaspora Blues. We're on Instagram at 3cr.diaspora blues. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.